Well, with your Bibles there open to Hebrews, we've now read all of chapter 11 in our scripture reading. And what I want to call your attention to now are the first three verses of chapter 12. And you will see why we have read all of chapter 11 as we get into chapter 12. And what we're going to do, as I I mentioned earlier, we finished 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're going to make it all the way through that book, but we are going to take just a little bit of a reprieve. And this week and next, we're going to look at Hebrews 12, 1, 2, and 3. Tonight, we'll focus our attention on verse 1. And next week, verses 2 and 3. So let's read together uh, Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3. I'll read aloud. You read silently with your Bibles in front of you. I love the sound of turning pages. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. These are the words of God. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider Him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. I want to preach to you this evening, enduring the race of faith. Enduring the race of faith. The text laid before us is a divine call to steadfastness in the Christian life. It is beseeching us to make personal holiness our supreme business and quest. It is a pressing appeal for the ongoing pursuit of godliness in our lives as believers. This epistle was written to the Hebrew Christians in the first century. Those of you who've studied a little bit of history, I'm looking at one who I taught medieval history and early church history to in high school, and he would be the first to tell you that things were not that joyful and easy and free and liberous for the first century Christians. They were facing imminent and intense persecution. And the persecution was so bad that some were forsaking their profession, they were denouncing the faith, as they were watching their brothers and their sisters being sentenced to die, being sentenced to be hung on a cross or burned at the stake or exiled or threw in a a coliseum to be devoured by lions. And as they saw that, they began to turn back and say, you know, I I know that I've professed to be a Christian in the past, but uh, I'm just not so sure anymore. And it is under these circumstances of apostasy and martyrdom that the writer of the book of Hebrews sends this letter to the believers to admonish them to continue the race of faith. At a time which believers may be tempted to slow down or to turn back or to stop, the apostle says, run. Let us run. I don't pretend is postulate that the difficulties facing Christians in America today are anything like what they were in the first century, but yet the Lord promised us, did He not, that until He returns, there will always be difficulties. There will always be those who hate His people, who hate Him, who persecute His people, and persecute Him. And so as we face the unique challenges of the 21st century, We must remember the words of the Apostle which are true in every age. Let us run. He employs an athletic metaphor. And this would have been very familiar to first century Christians and it was a a very common tactic of the New Testament to use an athletic metaphor. He compares the Christian to an athlete. And the Christian life, this life of faith, is likened unto the running of a race. 
Oftentimes, we don't think of our Christian life that way. No, we think of our Christian life as just floating by on flowery beds of ease, uh, on whatever the Lord can give to me and the church can give to me. But Paul, I believe it's Paul who's writing Hebrews, he would have us to think that the Christian life is not about what we can gain or what we can benefit in the flesh or here on earth, but it's about how vigorously we can toil and we can run and we can spin our wheels for the glory of God that we might please Christ. The Christian life is an active life. The Christian life is a self-disciplined life. It is a wholehearted, fully dedicated life of striving towards the ultimate goal. And if you're not living that kind of life, you're not living the Christian life. Apathy, complacency, lukewarmness, and just plain laziness have plagued American Christianity. Some of you are merely walking. Some of you have have just sat down when you need to be up and you need to be running the race that is set before you. And the key to running this race, what you need more than anything else, is the grace of endurance. The grace of endurance. And this is directly addressed in verses 2 and 3, but it's also intended in verse number 1. The race of faith is not a short race. God is not calling you to a sprint, but to a marathon. Any of you can sprint in the Christian life for a short time. Any of you can have a really good week. Any of you can have a week where uh, you can read half the New Testament. Any of you can start that Bible reading plan and determine to do really well, and you do really well for a week. Any of you can overcome the temptations of sin for a short time. Any of you can achieve one task in a quick amount of time, but you must understand that God is not calling us to sprint. He's calling us to endure a marathon over the long haul. God is not so much concerned with how fast we launch off the starting block at the beginning of the race as He is with how our stride is long after we've been running. When our muscles begin to hurt, when the fatigue sets in, when obstacles uh, become pressing in our way, that's when we need the grace of endurance. It's not how you start that matters with God. It's how you finish. You think, well, I've had a rough week. I've fall into this temptation. I've had a rough day. I've fallen into this temptation. And you think in your own mind, well, I guess there's no point in, in even trying any longer. I might as well just give up. That's exactly what Paul doesn't want you to do. Endure throughout the whole race. That's what the Bible is telling us to do. Many young converts begin their Christian life with so much zeal. I mean, they're ready to take the world for Christ. But when their aspirations are not immediately gratified, they begin to fizzle away and burn out. We started this work in January. And you realize there were a couple times when I thought to myself, this will never work out. We'll never have anything. We'll never have anything that amounts to nothing. And I'm wasting my time, and I should just pack my bags and move on to something else. But that would be disobedient to what the Bible says to do. So the question is, are we going to give up and quit? Are we going to press on for the glory and honor of God? And if you're going to run the race of faith, you must have the grace of endurance chiseled in your heart and engraved in your mind. You must resolve within yourself, listen, that it is always too soon to give up. And I know that I'm talking to people that have already had to make sacrifices for their convictions, for their faith, and for their desire to please the Lord. And let me... 
urge you and let me encourage you and let me challenge you by saying it's only just begun. You must have the staying power. The staying power of continuing to do what God has called you to do. You must have this ability that only God can give to run through the turmoil, to run past the hardships, to run around the persecutions, to run past the disappointments, through the discouragements, across the backslidings, around the temptations, and over the opposition. You must determine not to stop running until you have crossed the finish line into eternity. This race never ends until your life ends. And thankfully, God does not only command us to run this race, but He gives us, here in this text, all that we will ever need, not only to run, but to run well. You can experience victory in the Christian life. You can overcome hardship. You can defeat besetting sin. You can run victoriously and pleasing unto God. But only if you're running the way the Bible tells you to run. So, let's look at verse 1 here this evening. And I want to show you several things in this verse that will help us in our running of the race. The first is the compassing. The compassing. The Hebrews are called to remember the past in order to motivate them in the present. He says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. This is not talking about a navigation device. But rather, this word compassed means to be surrounded. We are surrounded. Everywhere we look, we see this great cloud of witnesses. What is it talking about? Well, the word wherefore calls our attention back to the previous chapter. Do you see why we read chapter 11 together? Because chapter 11 is this great cloud of witnesses. Chapter 11 is often called the Hall of Faith. And it is a chapter full of testimonies of godly men and women that ran their race in the face of unimaginable opposition and persecution, and yet they found a way to persevere through the obstacles that were in their path. They were compassed about. The idea is to be spiritually surrounded by heavenly motivation and inspiration. Now, notice this little word, this little four-letter word that's so important. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about. This implies that there was another group that was compassed about in like manner. And you'll remember in the Old Testament, there in the Exodus, as the Hebrews were sojourning, they were compassed about with a cloud that led them. And that cloud was the very presence of God in spirit form, leading them and guiding them and directing them. So the Hebrews would have been very familiar with this terminology. And in like manner, New Testament believers, you and me, we have saints in heaven to look to as our examples, as their lives descend on our memories like a great cloud. These are believers here who while others were bailing out, they continued in the calling of God. These are saints who embody the very endurance that the writer is seeking to instill in his audience. Now for first century Christians, this cloud would primarily consist of Old Testament saints, would it not? That's all they had at that point. And so they would have thought about the heroes of the Old Testament like Moses and Abraham and David. And that would have inspired them to push them on. Well, we in the New Testament, we have those Old Testament heroes, but we also have men like Paul and Peter and James and the Lord Jesus Himself. But even beyond that, I believe it's appropriate to understand that we have people in our own lives that lived after the Bible was written that encourage us and inspire us to run the race of faith. And their legacies shout out to us like the spectators in an auditorium who roar as the racers run by. Perhaps for you, uh, this is an uncle, or this is a father, or this is a grandfather, or this is a grandmother, or a relative, or a pastor that you once had, or someone in your life that was not there by chance. 
Someone that wasn't, it, it wasn't just luck that allowed you to meet this person, but it was the providence of God putting them into your life as an example. Maybe they're gone and with the Lord now. Maybe you've lost contact, but their memory, the faith that they lived, the life that they embodied, you look to that and you think, Lord, they followed Christ and they had something that I aspire to have. Give that to me. Was it not the prophet Elisha that prayed about Elijah? He said, when, the, when God asked him what he wanted, he said, I want twice of whatever that dude had. You ever met Christians like that? You, you ever heard a saint of God get a hold of the Lord in prayer and just cry out to God and pray to God and you think, I want a prayer life like that. Have you ever heard someone discuss the Scriptures and preach the Scriptures or talk about the Scriptures and it's just like they, they know this book like it's the back of their hand because they've spent so much time in the Word of God and you think, Lord, I want to know Your Word like that. Have you ever seen someone who sings to the glory of God in the congregation who loves the hymns of the faith who's not ashamed of what they sound like, who's not ashamed of others who might be listening, but they love the Lord so much that they have to praise Him. And you think, Lord, I want to be able to praise You like that. That is what this chapter is talking about. Can you hear this great cloud encouraging you today? Perhaps you feel like you're just the only one left. You're the only believer in your family. You're the only believer on the job site. You just feel like you're the only Christian in a world of unbelievers. And perhaps this is pressuring you to turn away from the truth and to turn back. Well, I would encourage you to listen to that great cloud of witnesses and hear the testimony of Noah, who says, let me tell you what it's like to be the only Christian for 120 years and to be mocked and to be ridiculed. Yet here he is in Hebrews 11. Perhaps you're frustrated because you don't know what the future holds. You're unsure of where God's going to take you. He's calling you and he's leading you and it's, it's just scary because you can't see where he's taking you and it's discouraging you from pursuing after him. Well, listen to this great cloud. And I believe that Abraham would say to you, let me tell you what it's like to go on a journey when you have no idea where you're going to. God called Abraham, who was living in the earth of the Chaldees, who was worshiping the moon, who was an idolater, and he said, leave the land of your family, forsake all of your familial ties, and go into a land which I will tell thee of. I'm not even going to tell you right now, Abraham. Just go. Perhaps... You're a young person and you're overwhelmed by the sins and the temptations and the sensuality of this culture and it's just tugging at your heartstrings everywhere where you turn and you, you, every time you look at social media, there it is and every time you turn on the TV, there it is and every time you're talking with peers your age, there it is and you're thinking, I don't know how I can maintain purity in this sensual culture. Well, just look to the great cloud of witnesses and listen to the testimony of Joseph who was in Potiphar's house, who was tempted with Potiphar's wife and who said, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And all of these men, oh yes, they're saints. Oh yes, they were used of God. But they were made of the same skin and the same bones and had the same red blood flowing through their veins as you do. And if God can give them the grace, and if God can minister to them, and if they can consecrate their lives to God, so can you. Nothing we face, no obstacle or opposition is new to the people of God. That's one of the greatest lies of Satan. He will tell you that whatever you're experiencing, whatever problem, whatever sin, whatever temptation, whatever struggle, you're the only one that's ever gone through that. No one else has gone through what you're going through. And it's so embarrassing that you better not tell anyone what it is. It's a lie. No temptation hath taken you, 
but that which is common to man. Nothing is new under the sun. So look to this cloud of witnesses. Whether in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, in your own life, in church history, and look to them who have already overcome what you feel you cannot overcome. And see them accomplishing it, not through their own strength, not because they were better than you or smarter than you. Did we not get that in our heads last week in 1 Corinthians at the end of the chapter? That it's not the mighty that God calls or the wise that God calls, but it's the weak and the feeble, and He gives them the grace to overcome. Just as He did with them, He will do with you. That's the compassing. But secondly, I want you to see the cumbrances in this text. Let us lay aside, verse 1, every weight. Let us lay aside every weight. This directive comes to us through the writer's athletic metaphor. Remember, we're talking about a race. We're thinking of a runner. And there are two things that we must lay aside and cast out of our lives in order to run this race. The first thing are the heavy weights that encumber us. A cumbrance is simply just an obstacle, a hindrance. That's what the word means. And what he's saying here, when he says, lay aside every weight... This is the picture that he's trying to paint. If you were going to run a race, you would not show up in a three-piece suit. If you were going to run a race, you would not run in heavy, steel-toed work boots. No, you would dress light. You would dress in something aerodynamic. You would dress in clothing that would aid your performance in this race. Now, there's nothing wrong with wearing... Fancy or heavy clothing. And there's actually a place for those types of clothing. But not when you're running a race. So too are the weights mentioned here. This is not a reference to sins per se. This is not talking about things that in and of themselves are immoral or wrong. But these are things that are lawful but not expedient. These are things that hinder us from performing our best. Things that we have in our life and we know they don't help us, but we do them anyways. We choose to keep them in our lives despite the negative impact they have on our ability to run the race. This plagues Christians today. It plagues them in every age, but it plagues Christians today. It is excess baggage that wastes our time and misdirects our energy to unprofitable activities. These are things that are permissible, but they do us great harm when we overindulge. And this is not a question between sin and not sin. This is not a question between wrong or right. This is a question between gold, silver, and precious stones, or wood, hay, and stubble. And many Christians will finish their race. They will finish their Christian life having done so much in their careers. Having achieved so much in their hobbies. They will have so much worldly accomplishments. But they will have very little progress in spiritual endeavors. Because they did not lay aside every weight. These encumbrances are things which require us to take time and strength away from our God-appointed duties to things which tend to bind our minds on earthly things and hinder our affections from being set on the things above. These are to be gladly relinquished for the sake of serving Christ. Paul said, I count all things lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. So the logical question comes up, well, what specific things are you talking about? I believe to tell you would be legalism. I don't think I am able to stand up here and tell you what things you need to quit doing in your own life. I could tell you 
uh, you need to spend less time watching TV, or you need to spend more time reading, or you need to spend less time doing this and more time doing that. You need to get up earlier. You don't need to sleep in so much. You need to go to bed sooner. I can tell you all of these things. And you know, that might be true in some instance for all of us, but I could look in the mirror and tell myself those same things. So I'm not going to come up here with a punch list of the do's and don'ts that you need to do in your own Christian life, but I will simply urge you to examine your own life and to look at your own heart and to pray and allow the Holy Spirit of God to reveal to you what changes need to be made. I'm very pleased to hear of the spiritual aspirations that I know some of you have whether it be going off to Bible college or ministry or just becoming a better Christian. I'm excited about your desires to do those things. And so I would ask you to examine your own life and ask yourself the question, Lord, what things do I need to eliminate? What things do I need to change? What things do I need to do a little bit less of so that I'm able to do more of something else that would better help me to achieve the goal that you've given me? This is a question about how serious we are about serving Christ. So many people profess a desire to be used of God, but they do not structure their lives so that they are usable. And all that reveals is they really don't have much of a desire to be used in the first place. I can't tell you how many people I've met that will tell me, I have such a desire to be a preacher of the gospel and to go to distant lands and to tell unbelievers about the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll say, that's such a wonderful desire. We need more people with that desire. Tell me, what are you doing now? Where are you, where are you a member of a local church. Well, I just don't have time right now to be a member of the Lord's church. That doesn't add up. That'd be like saying, I have a desire to be the NASCAR Sprint Cup champion, but I just haven't got around to getting my driver's license yet. If you're wondering why God isn't using you, perhaps you should consider if you're making yourself usable. God calls men to greater works who are already faithful to the work He has given them. And if we're not willing to prepare ourselves, then we really do not want to run the race of faith. I've never met one person who before being called to preach and called to study and called to hone their skills and abilities was just thrown into a ministry. I've seen many men that were destroyed by doing that. But if God calls you to do something, He will first call you to prepare for it. That's true in anything in life. And I, I'm not here preaching to you saying that you're only serving God if you're in the ministry. No, not by any means. We need Christian doctors. We need Christian lawyers. We need Christian cops. We need Christian janitors. We need Christian everythings. But if God is calling you to whatever He's calling you, He's first going to call you to a season of preparation. These are the cumbrances. You need to determine right now the younger the better, by the way. Determine right now that I'm going to structure my life so that I can serve Jesus Christ to the max. To the max. In everything I do. Thirdly, I want you to see the corruption. This is the second thing that we must lay aside. We must lay aside every weight, but watch this. And the sin which doth so easily beset us. Now this is unlike and far worse than the extra weights. The weights will slow us down, but this will trip us up, cause us to face plant, and completely stop us on the track. This is not merely wearing shoes that aren't fit for running. 
This is having our laces tied together so that we can't move at all. Notice the definitive article, the, followed by the singular word, sin. He doesn't say, lay aside these sins, but he says, lay aside the sin. Not many different sins. Not a sin, but the sin. That means all of us have one sin, it's, all this, it's one sin which we need to lay aside out of our life. I believe this speaks not to any specific malady, but it speaks of our inward corruption and that principle of the flesh that still works within us after our old nature is crucified. And the Lord saves you, He makes you a new creature. But yet there's that principle of brokenness and fallenness that remains in us. And the greatest hindrance to your Christian race is not any of the external challenges you will face. You know what hinders me most as a pastor? It's not a lack of time to study. It's not a lack of inspiration and motivation to go out and evangelize. It's not insufficient funds. It's not a lack of members. My greatest hindrance is my own sin and my own heart within me, hindering me from fully doing what Christ has called me to do. And this verse is not only calling us to do away with the external impediments, but also to mortify the deeds of the flesh which are within us. Now how does this sin, this inward corruption, most manifest itself? Well, it does in a number of ways, but I believe every sin really can be traced back to one fundamental flaw, and that is not believing God. Faithlessness. Faithlessness. Do you know what sin is? Sin, yes, it's a transgression of the law, but sin is in that instance not believing God and not obeying God. You have to first believe in order to obey. And if this race is the race of faith, and if it's by faith that we do everything in the Christian life, then it makes perfect sense that if we are failing to do something in the Christian life, there must be a problem with the faith. The sin of unbelief. And the thing that will bring you the most difficulty and cause you the most trouble and trip you up more than anything else is the evil of your own unbelieving heart. You say, I'm a Christian, I believe. I, I have no faithlessness. You're a liar. Why then would the Christian pray, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. Belief. We should be desiring to believe Him more and more each day. There are those you trust in your own life. And you might trust them with some things. You might trust them with some smaller things. But when it comes to bigger and larger things, you wouldn't trust them. And we should desire to know God more and more and cultivate a relationship with Him more and more that we fully and completely trust Him. Faith. I heard an old preacher one time give an illustration about Satan's yard sale. He said that Satan was having a yard sale and he had all of his tools laid out in the lawn. All the things he used to torment and to trip up Christians and to tempt them. There's one man who went to Satan's yard sale and he looked at all of his tools. And he looked at the tools of lies, the tools of sexual temptation, uh, the tools of greed, the tools of envy. And he saw all these tools for sale. But then in the very back, on the last table, there's this old, beaten down, rusty, worn and used tool and it was the most expensive thing at the yard sale. It was the tool of unbelief. And the man asked Satan, he said, why is this tool so expensive? It's clearly been used more than any others. 
Why is it so expensive? It's worn out. And Satan said, because if I can use this tool, it is so easy for me to use all the others. Once you begin to allow doubt and faithlessness and unbelief into your mind, you open the door to all kinds of other attacks. Once you begin to doubt what God said, is that not what caused the fall of man? Yea, hath God said? The sin was what? Partaking of the forbidden fruit? But what led to that sin? Not believing what God had said. And when we begin to disbelieve, to be faithless in our dealings, we don't need external hindrances. We'll begin to attack ourselves. We'll begin to trip ourselves up. And so it is so important for you that you have your unfeigned faith and trust and belief in God and His Word. We will not be able to run the race if we are not ever trusting and fully depending upon the good providence of God. The sin of unbelief that besets us and causes us to trust man and not God. It is a looking unto ourselves instead of a looking unto Christ. Unbelief will have us desiring our own self-will, our self-agenda, living a self-centered, self-focused, self-driven, self-determined life. The sin of unbelief is the sin of running God's race in man's strength. And it is the failure to wait on God to discern His will. And all of these are results of the unbelief that reside in our own heart. We must trust that though we may not see the full course, we may not see the potholes, we may not see the winding roads, God knew all of those things before He called us to it. Whatever struggle stands before you, do we not confess the sovereignty of God? That He knew all of those things that we were going to have to overcome and face before we ever got to them? Friend, you must believe that if He has called you to run the race and if He has led you to a creek, He will provide a bridge. And we must mortify the sin of unbelief. Fourthly, I want you to quickly see the constancy. Look at it. He says, And let us run with patience. Let us run with patience. The apostle is here stressing that there's no such thing as a part-time Christian. See, some of you live your Christian life with a spiritual on and off switch. And this is due to a, a failure to realize the high demand of God upon your life. Being a Christian is not a 9 to 5 job that you clock in and out of, but it is the 24-7 high calling of God to live a life that perpetually exhibits the saving grace that redeemed you. Notice the Apostle's words. He says, let us, let us. And this is more than just allowance. He's not just saying, uh, I will let you do this. But this word in the 1600s carried with it a much stronger emphasis. He is exhorting. He is urging. He is pleading with us. If we could not just read the pen, but if we could hear the apostle as he's writing, we would hear him as a coach stands on the sideline. He's screaming to his runners, Run! 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 Pick up the pace. Don't slow down. We need this in the Christian life. You must understand, God did not call you to live the Christian life alone. But you need the Word of God. And you need your brothers and sisters. When you fall in a pit, when you begin to tire out, to encourage you and to say, let us run. What are you doing? Let us run. Don't slow down. Don't stop. Run. The word run is in the present tense. Meaning that we can't stop. We can't take a break. We have to keep running. Herein is the central theme of this text. Let us run, watch, with patience. With patience. And this word is 
is synonymous and carries with it the same idea of endurance. Let us run with endurance. The word doesn't simply mean to have the ability to wait. Patience is a much more complex word than that. But it carries with it the idea of persevering under great pressure and resistance. Those who run with patience run triumphantly and run confidently. They do not meander frivolously through life, but they run with a purpose. They run with a goal in mind. What is your purpose, Christian? What is your goal? Is it to do all things to the honor and glory of Jesus Christ? Is it to be a testimony of His goodness? If it is, you're going to need patience because you'll realize that there are times when it's very difficult to please the Lord and to do what He's called you to do. And those who run with patience, they do not drop out. They do not give up. They do not sit down, but they keep on running the race that God has called them to no matter what stands in their way. Don't be satisfied to limp across the finish line. Do you have to be wholly consecrated? Do you have to fight a vigorous fight to be eternally redeemed? And perhaps you could say no. Perhaps you could say that it's, it's possible and I believe there will be a great number on the last day that will have very little to show for their life. But don't be satisfied with being a mediocre Christian. Works do not play any role whatsoever in your salvation. We're not talking about redemption here. We're talking about pleasing God as a Christian. Don't be satisfied to stand before God on the day of judgment and have nothing to show for the life that He's given you. But desire, friend, that when you stand before Christ, you'll have many honors. You'll have many crowns that you can cast at His feet. And you can say, Lord, look what you've done with me. Something I could never do on my own. Have that desire. Have that determination of finishing well. Finish well. This is the constancy of the race. If you have a bad day, if you stumble into sin, repent and confess it to God and get back up and keep running. See, here's what Satan will tell you. Satan will tell you, you've sinned and now you can't pray to God. Uh, you can't approach Him. You better not go to church. Uh, you have no business singing the hymns of, of Zion because you're filthy and wretched and guilty. And yes, that's true. The Bible says, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. You say, well, maybe I can't achieve what I once set out to achieve. Maybe not. Maybe you have missed an opportunity. But no one ever won any race by falling down and staying down. I can guarantee you, you won't do anything for God if you stay down but you'll be surprised what God can do with a runner who though he falls down, though he skins his knee, though he gets a little dirty, he gets up, he dusts himself off, and he gets back to running. The constancy of the Christian life. And the last thing I want you to see is the context. Let us run with patience. Watch. The race that is set before us. And there's two things I want you to see here. The first is this. Your race is set. It is set before you. Your race is fixed. Your race is immovable. Your race is immutable. It will not change. The course is determined. Your race was outlined, ordained, and predestined by a sovereign God before you ever began to run it. Does that not give you hope? To think that whatever you're going through, God knew about it before you ever began running? Your race might not always be easy. 
It might often be uphill. It might be in inclement weather. It might be in scorching heat. It might be in howling rain and wind. But nonetheless, this is the race which God has called us to. He's the master of the race. We are running along this track and we cannot see the bends, but He sits far above it. And He sees the beginning and He sees the finish line and He sees everything that we're going to go through and He says, I will be with you throughout the entire race that I've called you to run. Your race is set. But I want you to see this last thing. Your race is before you. It is before you. What does this mean? Well, see, some people think that they have to go to the mission field to run this race. Some think, I have to leave small town Tennessee. I have to go off to bigger and better things to run the race. And some of you, that may be the case. But for most of you, you need to understand that your race is right before you. It's right under your nose. It's whatever God is calling you to do right now. It is in your family. It is at your job. It is at your school. It is in your church. See, oftentimes it's easier to change locations and run a race someplace else. But God is challenging us to run our Christian race in our daily lives. As believers, everything you do is part of this race. And yes, you're to wait upon God, but it's not to be an idle wait. If you have aspirations of ministry and you're not there yet, keep running where you are until you get there. If you have aspirations of Bible college or seminary and you're not there yet, keep running until you get there. If you have aspirations of doing some spiritual endeavor, and you're not there yet, keep running until you get there. If you have aspirations of a godly family and you're not there yet, keep running until you get there. And in the words of Abraham's servant, while I was in the way, the Lord led me. But if you're sitting on the sidelines and you're not running at all, you're not making any progress. How can God lead you if you're not moving? God calls those who are already faithfully serving Him. God enlists those who are already running their appointed race. He does not call those who are taking a knee on the sideline. So you need to get in the way. You need to run your race. You don't need to look for shortcuts. You don't need to run, look for loopholes. But you need to run around the obstacles and run through them by the grace of God. This is verse 1 and we'll get into verses two and three, next week. But let me leave you with a word of encouragement. This race does have a finish line. And when you've completed your race, oh, you will stand before Jesus Christ and it will be Him that will judge your performance. It will not be other Christians. It will not be me. It will not be your parents. It will not be your brother. It will not be your sister. It will be Christ. So do not look to other racers to compare yourself with them. But run with a desire to be approved of God. And run with a determination to stand before Christ and hear the words, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. I believe when we hear those words, all the toils of this life will seem as nothing. The challenges that seem to discourage us and to cause us to think that we'll never make it, will seem like small stumps in the road when we stand before Christ. May this encourage you to run with endurance. May this encourage you to widen your stride. May this encourage you to pick up the pace. Don't slow down, but run. And perhaps for some of you, your race has never begun. You're running the wrong race, on the wrong track, on the wrong day, in the wrong direction. Because you've never even got to the starting block. You've never placed any faith in Jesus Christ. And for you, your finish line is not eternal life, but it's eternal damnation. If you're not on this race, 
That's where you're headed. And so you need to get off that race, to get off that broad way, and to get in the race of Jesus Christ, the race of faith. And you need to quit running the race that you're on, and you need to forsake all other endeavors, and you need to run this race that begins and ends with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Is it a struggle? Yes, but it's a glorious struggle. Is it a battle? Yes, but it's a blessed battle. Run the race of faith. Receive the Lord Jesus Christ and join this company of saints. And I pray that all of us would be found running the race that is set before us, striving to please Christ, when either by death or His return, we lay our eyes upon the Lord Jesus and cross that finish line. Oh, to be approved of God on that day. Having nothing to be ashamed of. Having run our race and run it well. Let's pray. Father, we thank You in Jesus' name for the privilege it is to run the race of faith. Thank You for calling us from a worthless existence of sin and debauchery, from our lost condition of fruitlessness, toiling away, wasting our own breath, and calling us to run the race of the glory of God. What an honor. What a privilege. Father, help us to run. Help us to run that we might be approved of You on that day. I pray that for us as individuals. I pray that for us as a church. And Father, I especially pray for those here that have not yet begun to run the race of faith, that don't even believe upon the Lord Jesus. Oh God, by Your grace, convict them of their sin. Call them out of darkness. Save them for Your honor and glory that they too might run a race and live a life to the glory of God in the Lord Jesus. It's in His name and His name alone that we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.